This is Based in Fact, a true crime podcast. Join host Lisa O'Brien as she examines America's most infamous true crime cases through the lens of the court, not the court of public opinion. No spin, no theories, no rumors, just facts. Here's Lisa O'Brien. In episode six, Kyle and I are talking about the May 5th, 1993 murders of Christopher Byers, Steve Branch, and Michael Moore in West Memphis, Arkansas. Their bodies were found bound and naked in a ditch in an area known to locals as Robin Hood Hills, a patch of woods bordering the boys' subdivision. Damian Eccles, Jason Baldwin, and Jesse Miss Kelly Jr. were arrested in June 1993 and convicted after two separate trials in 1994. Beginning in 2002, the three began a nine-year saga of DNA testing that ended with inconclusive results and an Alfred plea deal proposed by the killer's attorneys in August 2011. In 2017, podcaster Bob Ruff requested additional DNA testing using MVAC, a collection method that had been in use in Utah since 2011. Ruff falsely led viewers of his special to believe that the prosecutor was obligated to grant his request for testing in spite of his lack of agency or authority on behalf of the killers. When Ruff's efforts proved unsuccessful, Eccles' attorney stepped in to continue the propaganda campaign. Kyle and I will talk about the request for testing by Eccles' attorneys and the propaganda campaign that continues with Eccles' 2022 DNA testing request. And good afternoon, Kyle. How are you after these two weeks away? Good afternoon, Lisa. It's great. I'm doing really well. I'm excited to... Uh, I'm excited to talk about this case. This is sort of, in my mind, this is like the OG uh, of the innocence fraud movement. You know, it's gotten so much publicity and there's so much misinformation out there. So I'm really excited to talk about it. And incidentally, um, you know, during the two weeks that we've been off, I uh, took a family vacation that went through Memphis and I was actually able to visit West Memphis, Arkansas and visit um, the neighborhood. I couldn't make it to the crime scene um, because there are, um, it's changed a lot over the last 20 years, but it was really, it was very um, oddly interesting to be able to actually uh, drive through the boys' neighborhoods and go to the middle mm -hmm. school, see the memorial. Uh, or sorry, elementary school and see the memorial. So this has been this has been such a fascinating case for um, so many people for so long. It's really excited to talk about it. Yeah, you probably if you drove on the service road out of the neighborhood from Seventh Street, you mm -hmm. drove by the crime scene. But it's the woods were taken down. I think in two thousand seven or two thousand eight. I think that's right. Uh, before I even it may have been it may have been earlier than that. I know. I did some experimentation in the woods in 2001 with uh, Sean Wheeler and uh, another friend of ours uh, in which I stood in the middle of the woods and screamed and Sean stood 
on the other side of the pipe bridge. And he said he heard tires squealing. That's interesting. And that was, you know, because one of the claims is that they're in the middle of a neighborhood. They would have screamed. People would have heard them. It would have drawn attention. Well, it didn't because my screams and I'm very loud. Um, <laughs> it sounded to Sean standing in the neighborhood like tires squealing on the interstate. Yeah, I don't think people understand, you know, how close it is to the interstate and how busy that interstate is and just, you know, the traffic, you know, just how much noise the traffic makes. Because, you know, at the time, too, there was the the truck walk, the truck wash right mm -hmm. there. And so you would have had lots of big 18 wheelers on and off the road nonstop. Correct. Lots and lots of, you know, just sort of interstate noise. So. All right. Well, let's get started on the um, on the info, on the information. And, and there's a lot of information. Uh, we're going to touch on the murders, though, in the overview first, because, um, you know, sometimes I think you've referred to Occam's razor with Rodney Reed. And I think in this case, we've got Occam's razor again. Absolutely. Um, these were three young children found in their own neighborhood not far from their own homes they were riding bikes in the neighborhood uh, they were seen going toward the woods at six o'clock p.m when they didn't come home uh, toward dark which was about 8 p.m families started getting worried families made earnest efforts to locate them uh, more or less independently. Um, and what was established at trial was that the families started looking around five or five 30 efforts became more concentrated as time went by. And by eight o'clock, nine o'clock that night, the boys were reported missing. Chris and Mike were reported at eight 10 and Steve was reported at nine o'clock, um, more and more people in the neighborhood got involved and searches became more concentrated. They focused on the woods. They didn't find anything. Um, it's long been a theory of mine. And I think Pam Hicks at one point uh, said the same thing that by the time people really started searching in those woods, the boys were already dead. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but, uh, on the morning of the 6th, the West Memphis Police Department and other county agencies joined the efforts. Um, there were some, some drop balls on the night of the 5th, because I think there, had there been more of a law enforcement presence involved in the search that might've resolved a little bit earlier as far as finding the boys. Uh, but that didn't that didn't occur. The ball was dropped. And that's something Pam Hicks also felt a great deal of animosity toward law enforcement over um, the at one o'clock, a juvenile probation officer observed a shoe floating in a ditch in the woods uh, across from 10 miles by you. And at 145 p.m., Sergeant Mike Allen fell into the ditch while trying to retrieve that shoe. And when he did fall, he dislodged Michael's body. And, you know, Lisa, 
I always feel like in a lot of these cases, there's a common theme to always point fingers at law enforcement, which, of course, they could, in virtually every case of all time, they could always do a better job. But, you know, in fa- it's, it's also not fair to sort of, you know, look back with that, you know, lens of history and thinking, oh, mm-hmm. well, you know, they should have done this, they should have done that, which you have to think, okay, in the moment, what were they thinking, you know, in the moment, nobody was thinking these three boys were brutally murdered. They probably were thinking, okay, maybe they're, you know, you know, maybe they're hiding out in the woods, you know, no, with the lens of history, it's always easy to sort of look back retrospectively and criticize and nitpick on every little action. And they certainly could have done a better job, but they probably did about as good as they could have done knowing what they knew at the time. And but I and I say that, I you know, really, the reason I say that is because if if more trained law enforcement had been involved the night of May 5th. They would have probably seen things and noticed things, and it might have helped in the eventual prosecution. Absolutely. Of the perpetrators, whereas the the delay between the the deaths and the discovery of their bodies left open a window for time of death arguments absolutely um and then it's also it's kind of ironic that that a lot of the focus of the pro killer camp has been on jerry driver and steve jones the juvenile probation officers and that was those were things that could have been brought into at trial because they were facts known to Eccles, facts known to Baldwin, facts known to Miss Kelly right. at the time they went on trial. Um, because a lot of people point fingers at Steve Jones and say Steve Jones found the shoe because he put the bodies there. And there were allegations <laughs> against Steve Jones in, in social media and, and well, before social media in um, bulletin boards and case discussions. Uh, that, that, and that Steve Jones and Jerry Driver somehow framed Eccles because of their, you know, animosity against them and their, uh, the fact that they later years were, were turned out to be pro, you know, very corrupt individuals. Um, but again, those are things that were known to Eccles at the time he went on trial. He should have brought them in then. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, um, if he believed it at the time. Why did why did it only become an issue much, much later on? So um, and the one of the most heartbreaking aspects of this case is that Michael's body was dislodged when Mike Allen went into the ditch. And then over the next uh, hour and 15 minutes. Brian Ridge was on his hands and knees searching for Chris and Steve. And he located them at 2.59 p.m. Uh, and, and if you've ever seen any of the testimony, uh, I think in, in Eccles Rule 37, Brian Ridge, when he testified about this uh, event, it actually still choked him up. And this was in, you know, 1999. Yeah, I, can, I can't imagine having to do that. 
Yeah. So, um, and another thing that where the boys' bodies, where they were seen and where they were found, it rules out a person with access to a vehicle. Because if a person, even if they killed them in the woods, if they had access to a vehicle, it would have been a very easy matter to put them in the vehicle and transport them to the Mississippi River, which was just a few miles away, and drop them in there. Or cross the bridge and go down to Memphis and go to a bad neighborhood and deposit them there. Or deposit them, you know, or leave them somewhere miles away from where they belonged and where they were last seen. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great point. I had never contemplated that, but that makes so much sense. Um, so now when we look at the, the facts, again, these are, these are facts that were established at trial. Steve's body was 27 feet south of Michael's and Chris's body was 32 feet south of Michael and five feet from Steve. Pardon me. Um, they were all naked and bound wrist to ankle by shoelaces, their own shoelaces. And substantially all of their clothing was found in the ditch near Michael's body. The bikes were found in 10 mile bayou directly under the pipe bridge crossing the bayou. And if I recall correctly, they were at the center of the bridge as though two people walked up to the middle of the bridge. One put one down, one put the other down. Absolutely. That's right. And uh, did you, did you cross the pipe? Have you ever crossed that pipe bridge? I did. I crossed it and I try, you know, if you come from the neighborhood, there is a pretty well, there's a, it's still a little treacherous, but there is a path where you can still, you know, walk down. I did cross the pipe bridge, mm -hmm. but on the other side, sort of going up, you know, yeah. towards the interstate that has largely kind of grown over. And right. so there was, you know, you'd have to really be prepared, uh, you know, boots and jeans and probably a tool to sort of, you know, navigate up. But I yeah. was able to go down and cross the pipe bridge, um, but then stopped on the other side. That is, uh, I've, I crossed it several times. I hated crossing it because my balance has never been the best anyway. And you can't really walk on the boards on either side. Or at least I wasn't able to do it on the boards on either side. I had to walk on the pipe in the center. Well, and it's one of the reasons for me that this case sort of, you know, brings home, you know, a lot of personal things, because when I was these boys age, there was an air, there was a very, I mean, almost very, very similar at the end of our neighborhood, there was a Creek and we used to cross the Creek, the same on a pipe. There was no bridge. We would cross uh -huh. you know, on the pipe. And then there were some big woods behind it. So yeah. every time I think about this case, this is like, this was me at their age playing in the woods after school, you know, crossing the Creek you know, on a pipe and then playing, uh, we called it bamboo land, uh -huh. um, but playing back in the woods, you know, until it was dark. Yeah. And, and I think for, for them, they would walk on the middle of the pipe and roll the bike on the, on the boards. Yep. That's exactly right. You know, that's exactly what um, I think they did. And a, a lot of 
people like to speculate and, and like to um, declare things impossible. And that's another thing that you have to, you know, a lot of these cases, you have to try to not do it. Um, these kids managed to do something that you may think they couldn't do, but they did. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, when you're that age and have no fear, there's a lot of things you can do that you, <laughs> exactly. you they never contemplate falling off of it. There's yeah. never something that's even think is possible. It, they don't even think about it. Exactly. Although, you know, my 30 something year old self, when I was walking across that very first time, I knew I was going to end up in the bayou. I just knew it. <laughs> exactly. You know, and um, but to get the, the full experience, you have to go the pipe bridge at least once. Because you could access everything from the interstate, from the service road. And we did a lot of times access from the service road, but you have to, to get the feeling you had, you had mm -hmm. to go across that pipe bridge just once at least. So uh, back to what was established at trial during the initial investigation, the, the West Memphis PD did follow up on various leads. Uh, they sought information or, or assistance from the FBI that said, you're looking at a Vietnam vet. You're looking at a mentally ill adult. Um, they looked at local people. They looked at local sex offenders. There was even an allegation that they illegally accessed mental health records at some point during the investigation. Um, and one of the things that they, one of the aspects that they uh, looked at was a, an 18 year old named Damian Eccles, who in an in initial interview on May 10th, 1993, gave answers to questions that made him a suspect, but there was insufficient evidence. So he was not arrested at that time. And then for the next several weeks, the West Memphis PD pursued many leads. They talked to a lot of people. Uh, if you've ever been to the evidence room and looked at the files, the number of people they talked to during that time frame is staggering. Um, it's, it's almost overwhelming. I, I tried to, I was involved in, in trying to obtain documents from West Memphis PD over several trips while I lived in Arkansas. And I mean, some days it was just, there was too much. There was no way we were gonna get it all. Um, well, and again, it's this, it's this weird, you know, as we've talked about in a lot of these cases, the pro killer side always looks at everything in a vacuum because on one hand, there's this mass, you know, the, the police are stupid and incompetent and they can't do anything right. But then on the other hand, they've created this, you know, 4D chess master conspiracy where all this is done to frame poor Damien Eccles. But yet, magically, he's not even considered for quite a while until, you know, they look at all these other mm -hmm. people. So, you right. know, it can't be both. They can't all be stupid and incompetent and then also execute this brilliant, you know, 4D chess conspiracy theory to frame somebody. Right. 
And um, it wasn't until June 3rd, 1993, that they decided to bring in Jesse Miss Kelly Jr., who was an associate of Eccles, a known associate of Eccles. Um, of course, Eccles and Baldwin later on said, no, not really. We weren't friends with him. After four hours of questioning, Miss Kelly confessed to participating in the murders and named Eccles and Baldwin as his accomplices. Um, so that was uh, between May 10th. And there's a lot of allegations of it. it was a rush to judgment because they questioned him on the 10th of May, five days after the murders. Well, they questioned a lot of people. They talked to him on the 9th. Big deal. What's your problem with that? If you have a teenager that's telling uh, juvenile law enforcement authorities he likes to drink blood, he's in a cult that's about to graduate to human sacrifice. When you have three young children murdered, if you don't talk to that person, you're stupid. Absolutely. Um, and I think another problem that faces uh, that faces advocates of their guilt is the problem of a suspension of disbelief on the part of advocates for their innocence. Um, the idea that Eccles was a witch or a warlock or had some magical powers or could mind control people, all those things are poo-pooed as outlandish and how could anybody possibly believe them? And that's not the problem. The problem is Eccles believed it. Well, yeah, and it goes back to, I mean, if you look at what Eccles has done since the Alfred plea, he pretends to be a witch. He literally, I mean, he pretends to be everything or maybe pretend, he purports to be yeah. everything that the police thought he was back then. I mean, it's not like he has shied away from any of the occult or being a witch or what does he call it? Magic, mm -hmm. you know, all of the stuff that they say said about him back then, right. he's only proven it since the Alfred police. Right. Exactly. And he, you know, he, he's doubled down on it. Exactly. He purports to teach other people his magic system. Now I'm going to say right now, um, Eccles is a little man who was never going to be anything, was never going to be very interesting. He still isn't. He's a parrot. He has no original thoughts. He has to steal from other people and incorporate it into his belief system and then hold it out as his own. And he doesn't have an original thought in his head and he hasn't had an original thought in his head probably since he pooped his fur diaper when he was a baby. <laughs> that was his last original thought. Ooh, I pooped my diaper. Um, he, he's just not, you know, he's not that intelligent. He's not motivated. His, you know, his goal in life was to lay around and collect a check for his mental illness you know all this misunderstood artist crap is just 
propaganda. There's not a shred of truth in it. And anybody who buys it is deluded. Yeah, his entire life has been taking advantage of other people, whether it's the state and taking advantage of taxpayers or taking advantage of rich celebrities or even taking advantage of his poor wife. Yeah. So, all right. So back to the, to the facts, a lot of, a lot has been made about the trials. So I'm just going to kind of gloss over all that. Uh, after Miss Kelly's confession, the arrest warrants and search warrants were issued and Eccles Baldwin and Miss Kelly were all arrested. They were indicted and charged with three counts each of capital murder. They were assigned attorneys by the state because they were all three indigent. Um, Eccles was represented by Val Price and Scott Davidson. Baldwin was represented by Paul Ford and George Robin Wadley. And Miss Kelly was represented by Dan Stidham and Greg Crow. Miss Kelly was tried separately. His trial was moved to Corning in Clay County. He was tried between January 1994 and February 1994 and was ultimately convicted of one count of first-degree murder and two counts of second-degree murder. The first-degree murder count was based upon his confession in which he admitted that Michael ran away and he chased Michael down and brought him back to be killed. Um, His conviction and sentence were affirmed on direct appeal. He was sentenced to uh, life in prison on the first degree murder count and two 20 year terms on the second degree murder count. Eccles and Baldwin were tried together. Uh, Their venue, the case, their cases were moved to Jonesboro in Craighead County, Arkansas. In March of 1994, Eccles was convicted of three counts of capital murder and sentenced to death. And Baldwin was convicted of three counts of first-degree murder and sentenced to life without the possibility of parole. Uh, Ironically, had he not entered the Alford plea in 2011, he likely could have gotten his sentence reduced when the U.S. Supreme Court uh, found that mandatory minimum uh, sentences of life without parole for juveniles were constitutionally unacceptable um but that's just a side note sorry um in 1997 their convictions and sentences were affirmed on direct appeal and became final they then went to state post-conviction well at least Eccles did his rule 37 claims were denied by the trial court and um eventually the Arkansas Supreme Court affirmed that denial. Eccles also filed a couple of writs of error quorum nobis, uh, attempting to reopen post-conviction litigation. Uh, one of them alleged that he was mentally incompetent to stand trial, uh, but those were denied by the Arkansas Supreme Court. His federal writ of habeas corpus was stayed pending the outcome of a motion for new trial, which had been filed in state court in 2008. And then Baldwin and Miss Kelly also eventually pursued Rule 37, but their claims had not been resolved as of 2008 when they filed motions for new trial. 
So that's kind of a thumbnail of the trial post-conviction process that they had the benefit of. Um, another, another aspect of post-conviction process beginning in 2001 in Arkansas was DNA testing. And that process begins with a motion filed by a convicted person requesting DNA testing. And we know that Eccles had counsel that knew how to do that because that's what his counsel did in July of 2002. And this will, this will come into play later when we talk about the current propaganda campaign. Um, the, one of the things in legal circles, you can file a motion, but unless you ask for it to be heard or you ask for it to be decided ex parte by the court, meaning without input from your opponent, um, you're basically going to file a motion and until it's set for hearing, it's just going to sit there. And the DNA testing statute, giving the benefit of the doubt, was probably somewhat um, uncertain on the procedures that would be required of Eccles. So his attorney did not ask for a hearing and no orders were ever entered by the court. The motion was just filed and sat there. In January of 2003, there was an order for preservation of evidence entered, which secured the evidence pursuant to Arkansas uh, Code Annotated Section 12-12-104, and it further ordered that the evidence shall be available only to the parties to the action for forensic testing to ensure the physical integrity and chain of custody of that evidence. So... Um, this is interesting because later on, when we have outsiders asking to test evidence, we have this order that's still in effect. Um, a supplemental motion for DNA testing was filed on May 21st, 2003. Uh, it sought leave to apply unavail previously unavailable scientific methods to the examination of crime scene evidence. And this was actually a request for testing other than DNA. They wanted to redo fiber examinations. Um, they wanted to redo other examination of other evidence. Um, all under the guise of supplementing the DNA testing that they were wanting to do. The um, in 2004, the state and Eccles and Baldwin entered into an agreement permitting DNA testing of various items of physical evidence in the case, including scrapings from the victim's hands, hairs from the victim's bodies, and ligatures and swabs from the victim's bodies. Um, the lab chosen by Eccles was Bode, and that was where all the evidence was going to be transmitted. 
Um, in 2005, Eccles and Baldwin each signed acknowledgments that the uh, evidence may be consumed or destroyed during the testing process. And this is another, another aspect that comes into play later on because some of this evidence, you got one shot. And you're, you're subjecting it to collection. And if you don't get anything, you've taken everything that was there. Or it could actually mean destruction, like, um, you know, consuming the ligatures or consuming whatever biological material is available on the ligatures. So the first STR forensic DNA case report issued by Bode was dated on 12-30-2005. And it was basically just documenting receipt of evidence on June 7th, 2004 and Bode's initial, initial analysis. Uh, interestingly enough, while they were able to recover complete profiles from uh, swabs taken at autopsy and a red brown string, they um, also had partial profiles on some swabs and the hair and fingernail scrapings that they uh, were testing. And there were no reportable results recovered from fingernail scrapings from Michael, rectile and penile swabs, ligature hair, penile swab from Steve, cutting from blue pants, Kershaw knife, hair from ligature on Michael, fingernail scrapings from Steve, fingernail scrapings from Chris, Kershaw knife, bag of clothing, and the boy, the ligatures on the boys. So in this propaganda, they want to test ligatures. The ligatures, when they were tested in 2004, no DNA was recovered. And again, this is going to be um, important. <laughs> it's going to come into play later in our talk. Are you still there, Kyle? Yeah, absolutely. No, I'm just listening. It's <laughs> it's so much interesting, detailed information to think through. Okay. So uh, during this process, Eccles uh, was submitting status reports to the Arkansas Supreme Court because during one of his quorum nobis uh, uh, actions, he kept asking for extensions of time to complete DNA testing, but never reported DNA testing having been done or, or reported any results. So the Arkansas Supreme Court got a little testy and said, now you have to tell us where you stand on DNA testing. So it's almost it was just a delay tactic. Correct. It was. And um, interestingly enough, too, the agreed order for DNA testing that was entered in 2004 required the results to be filed with the court and provided to both Eccles counsel and the prosecutor. Based on my following of the 
process and my review of the court records in Jonesboro, Bode was not filing these things with the court, nor was it giving them to the prosecutor. Bode was providing them to the client, Eccles, and then letting Eccles distribute them at will if he wanted to. And he apparently didn't want to because no result, the only reports ever filed were the ones filed in connection with pleadings filed on behalf of Eccles. So does that mean, is it possible that there may be results that only Eccles and his counsel know about? Would that be possible? That is actually more likely than not. I mean, I can't say, um, I don't have any direct knowledge, but that is the logical inference. But it would be possible, right? Mm-hmm. So the DNA might have come back to a match to him or to Baldwin or to Miss Kelly, but they had they did not. They basically violated the court order by not reporting that to and, the state. And Bode and well, Bode was violating the court order, but Bode was doing what its client told it to told do. him to do, right? Um, and and it was violating the court order and. I wish that when Eccles filed the 2007 motions uh, making allegations against Terry Hobbs based on Bode reports, I wish that the prosecutor had taken a harder line and made an issue of the fact that Bode did not report results as it was required to do in the order. Yeah, that seems like a really big mess. But I, that I would guess, have saved us a bunch of headache down the yeah, road of all the I, stuff. With the but I, I'm more likely than not the optics. The prosecutor felt he would um, encounter would be too negative. In other words, he's going to look like he's beating up on a victim. Because Eccles is playing it, playing it as a victim. Or he's going to look like he's trying to um, tarnish Bode. Which later on basically was found to have problems. Um, but we'll talk about, we could talk about that another time. Um, but anyway, you know, I think he, he realized or maybe he just didn't want to fight that battle at that time. So that's interesting. Cause it seems, I mean, that would seem like, you know, in the, you know, pursuit of justice that the state would want to know the results of those, those yeah. DNA tests. That seems like an odd, odd decision on the state's part. Well, I think because what Eccles was relying on was not conclusive, was inconclusive. I think they were just going to let it go. And um, Lisa, not, I'm sorry, go ahead. So, yeah, I think, you know, that that may have also been pick your battles. Right. And Eccles was relying on inconclusive evidence. And Lisa is not to hope I'm not jumping ahead. Is this the testing that. Out of which came this sort of the mitochondrial DNA that was like a one in 
several million, you know, potential consistent consistent with one of the one of the parents. I I hate to use his name because I feel like he's gotten slandered so much um, and falsely accused. But is this is it during the this round of testing that the propaganda that there was DNA that was consistent again? I think it's like one in three million that might have been consistent with one of the parents. Is that correct? Correct. And, and it's the, the terminology is that there was, um, a mitochondrial DNA result that did not exclude Terry Hobbs. However, and I'm going to say his name because I want to point out how weak that is. Um, it did not exclude him. And in, in reality, the evidence hair and Terry Hobbs actual, the mitochondrial DNA from the evidence hair and Terry Hobbs actual mitochondrial DNA were not even a hundred percent identical. Right. There was a differentiate, a differentiation at a nucleotide, which means it didn't exclude Hobbes, but it also didn't exclude a lot of other people who had the original mitochondrial sequence of the actual hair. And that was the same as the hair found on the tree stump, which was allegedly did not exclude David or that did not exclude David Jacoby, Hobbes's friend, uh, which ironically, Eccles counsel used not to try and place David Jacoby at the crime scene, but to try and place Hobbes at the crime scene by saying he picked up Jacoby's hair and dropped it at the crime scene. <laughs> Which, it, of course, then would completely ignore and, the high possibility that any of the kids that had gone to to their to the Hobbes home wouldn't have maybe picked up a hair just from, you know, being there and playing with Stevie. Correct. Exactly. And um, I, you know, I want to go on. There were multiple reports. Um, Now, there is an interesting uh, letter that was generated by the Arkansas State Crime Lab, which took issue with the way Bode is describing and reporting its results, which are acknowledged by Bode to be inconclusive. And I want to I want to read this quote because it kind of it really highlights the propaganda nature of this entire thing going back to 2002. In reviewing all of this data, it is noted that the quality and quantity of the results obtained are very limited and require extreme caution in its interpretation. In rendering an opinion of this data, one cannot overlook the facts in this case. The three victims in this case were nude and submerged in water for between 18 to 24 hours prior to discovery. It is very unlikely that any interpretable interpretable DNA profile other than that due to contamination or that of the victims would be recoverable. Based on the Bode analyst's letter, it is clear that the data provided 
is questionable at best. The analyst uses possible and suggests to describe the data. The analyst documents that there is clearly a possible mixture present, not a mixture present. She also indicates elevated baseline, primer peaks, and imbalance. Uh, the analyst who wrote the letter goes on to say, it's my opinion that the alleles and possible mixtures are due to contamination and are stochastic effects and no conclusive interpretation is possible. And this is really, you know, this is what you have after six years, you have inconclusive DNA results. You have mitochondrial DNA that does not exclude an alternate suspect. But even Eccles' own experts admitted that those inconclusive mitochondrial DNA results were not sufficient to implicate Terry Hobbs in the murders. So you have Eccles lying and portraying these results as conclusive because in all of the propaganda that was put out between October 29, 2007, when the amended writ of habeas corpus was filed, and up to this day, Eccles claims it's Terry Hobbs's hair. And that's false. Right. And that's been the big, I mean, that's even in the movies, the Paradise Lost movies, that's been the big move is, you know, there's whole, there's crazy conspiracy theories all around. It was Terry Hobbs. And, you know, I mean, they're so nutty. You know, they're QAnon level nutty at this point. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, um, you know, the, the Eccles finally filed a motion for a new trial because when he filed his, he filed his amended writ of habeas corpus and the federal court said, this, we can't do anything with this. You got to file this in state court, buddy. So he had to go in April of 2008 in state court and basically filed an identical motion as a motion for a new trial in state court. Um, but the only evidence that that relied on DNA rise was the mitochondrial DNA evidence that did not exclude Hobbs and Jacoby. The rest of the evidence that it relied on was allegedly incriminating statements, alleged abuse of Steve by Hobbs, witnessed by Pam Hicks, her sisters and her mother, I'll, you know. A, a variety of circumstantial evidence which supposedly is not sufficient to hold Eccles, Baldwin, and Miss Kelly accountable for the murders. And inconclusive fiber evidence is not sufficient to link them to the murders. And yet, inconclusive mitochondrial DNA evidence, which is no different from fiber evidence, is sufficient to say Terry Hobbs is the real killer. Um, the new trial process continued um, in September of 2008, Judge David Burnett denied the motions for new trial without a hearing, basically because the DNA results supporting the motions were inconclusive and the other evidence that they were relying on did not meet their burden of proof. In 
in November of 2010, the Arkansas Supreme Court reversed that finding and remanded the cases back to the trial court for hearings pursuant to the DNA testing statute. And in that, um, another bit of propaganda, which is, is being misrepresented, in that opinion, the court, the Supreme Court, Arkansas Supreme Court cited unknown male DNA found on a penal swab from one of the victims. But that was actually, when you look at the results, it was male DNA that did not exclude the victims or Eccles, Baldwin, and Miss Kelly. But is portrayed as not as unknown male DNA. So it's misrepresented. Like everything about this case on the pro-killer right. side. Exactly. So um, the process for the evidentiary hearings began in earnest in March of 2011. There were hearings actually set in April, but Eccles made additional testing requests, and so the hearings couldn't go forward, and the attorneys weren't available, and so they had a lot of scheduling issues. On July 18, 2011, Eccles filed a DNA status report with the Arkansas Supreme Court, advising that additional testing was in progress. And citing loss of stomach contents mentioned in Stevie's autopsy report, which Eccles had sought testing on. Um, on July 25th, 2011, Eccles filed a supplemental DNA status report with the Arkansas Supreme Court advising that 12 new hairs had been tested, that three were incapable of being tested, eight yielded mitochondrial DNA profile consistent with Chris Byers. One yielded a profile that was not consistent with any of the victims and excluded Eccles, Baldwin, and Miss Kelly. They also did not report that it included any other suspect. So, in other words, it also excluded Hobbs, but they just didn't say it excluded Hobbs. Mm. Uh, I am I am inferring that it excluded Hobbs because they didn't say, but it doesn't exclude Terry Hobbs. Um, now, this is these are the DNA testing results. They've had DNA testing. So giving the false premise or giving the false inference that there was there's never been DNA testing or that they've never had an opportunity to exonerate themselves with DNA testing is the first step in the propaganda campaign. Let's pretend DNA can tell us something that we don't already know. And you've had that opportunity. Yeah, they, I mean, they've only had the opportunity. They've actually had the testing. Yeah, I mean, you, you had the testing and, and it was inclusive. Um, on August 3rd, 2011, the defense via Patrick Banka, who had begun representing Eccles uh, during this time, met with his old law school buddy, Arkansas Attorney General Dustin McDaniel. And at that meeting, 
Benka proposed some kind of solution that would make everybody happy. So the the again the propaganda that they were forced to take the Alfred police that the Alfred police were brought to them by the defense by the prosecution by the state and they were strong armed. Again, that's another false narrative. Their attorneys came up with the Alfred plea. Because the prosecutors wanted a guilty plea. And finally, it was Braga who proposed the Alfred plea, which allows a defendant to plead guilty while still proclaiming his innocence to the court. Um, and another, another uh, element of the propaganda, uh, well, I'm skipping ahead. Um, the Ellington and the deputy prosecutors met with McDaniel on August 9th. And according to the Moors, who I heard from around August 19th, 2011, on August 18th, they were called into, if I remember correctly, Mike Allen's office at the, at the Crittenden County Sheriff's Office. And at that, in that office on August 18th, they were told, we're doing a plea. They're getting out of prison. It's a done deal. I can't imagine how that news felt for the families. I just, I can't imagine if you're the Moors or any of the families feeling like, you know, these people that brutally murdered your children well, in a horrible fashion are getting out of prison. I just can't imagine that phone call and conversation. I I think that this is one of the most cowardly, despicable actions Scott Ellington performed as the prosecutor. One of this, the first one really was when the, when the defense attorneys come to you and say, we'll take an Alfred plea before these hearings without presenting any of our evidence. He should have said, let's talk about it after the hearings. Let's see what the judge decides on the motions for new trial. Because to me, with my 30 plus years of experience working in civil law firms, is that the defense had no, uh, no confidence in being able to meet their burden of proof at the hearings and this is another yet another factor that is misrepresented the arkansas supreme court did not order new trials the arkansas supreme court ordered hearings on the motions for new trial filed on behalf of Eccles baldwin and miss kelly at those hearings Eccles baldwin and miss kelly bore the burden of proof Ellington could have sat in his chair, cross-examined Eccles, Baldwin, and Miss Kelly's witnesses, pointed out the inconclusive nature of every single DNA result, questioned the credibility of the witnesses with statements and abuse allegations and all those things, because none of that shit was reported during the investigation in 1993. Um, 
and he could have, you know, he would have destroyed them with very little effort on his part. Yeah, it's it's almost seemed to me like it was Texas Hold'em and the defense was bluffing and Ellington just completely folded without even asking to see the cards, not even calling I, the hand. I heard and read in multiple sources that Ellington was not a trial attorney. Ellington did not belong in the prosecutor's office because Ellington was not a trial attorney. Um, so yeah, he, he missed trial attorney 101. If your opponent comes wanting to settle, roll the dice because you're yeah, absolutely, of you're course. definitely going to win. And because if the motions for new trial had been denied now, granted, if the motions for new trial had been denied, no, they weren't going to go away. Eccles would have pursued his writ of habeas corpus in federal court. But you know what? He would not have prevailed. No, absolutely. Because he offered nothing in his state court claims that entitled him to a new trial. Um, Baldwin and Miss Kelly would have pursued their state rule 37 hearings. But again, they offered nothing that would have granted them relief. And in fact, the hearings on their Rule 37 went quite well for the state. And the thing that really angers me with Ellington is he had um, two attorneys from the Attorney General's office, Raup and Holt, I believe, who had done a phenomenal job to date defending against the allegations having been made by Eccles, Baldwin, and Ms. Kelly in post-conviction. They were more than adequate to counter anything at the new trial hearings. Um, but I also suspect as well that the full DNA results had not been provided to Ellington at that point, because if he had gotten the full DNA, he would know that there's something in that DNA that is fatal to their claims. That's the only reason that they would ask for Alfred police. There had to be one, if there was yeah. one piece of evidence that linked, if there was one piece of evidence that linked Eccles, or Baldwin, that one piece of evidence corroborates Miss Kelly's confessions. Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, and he just Ellington just got outlawed. He he got outmaneuvered, and I think you know he thought it was going to go away, and of course it didn't because they they um, you know they're they have to keep the propaganda going. They have to keep the appearance of innocence going. So even when they make the Alfred plea, even when they give up their opportunity to win new trials and complete exoneration, that they claim their evidence supports. They say they want to pursue exoneration from the outside and their um, 
their advocates cite informal agreements regarding future investigation and potential for future forensic examination of evidence. And Ellington stated in interviews that he's willing to consider potential exculpatory evidence presented by the attorneys for Eccles, Baldwin, and Ms. Kelly. But none of this is included in the formal pleas. Right. Well, and it goes back to, because I've heard the, the pro-killers always advocate and say, oh, well, you know, the state took the Alford plea because they knew they were innocent and the state didn't want to have liability to have to pay them. But I would say, conversely, if they had uncovered any exculpatory evidence during this process, if they had any evidence that would, you know, lead to them being acquitted, why would they leave all that money and opportunity on the table? Why would mm -hmm. they walk away from the ability to then go receive exactly. very just compensation from the state? If they were truly innocent, why would you walk away from the opportunity to really, you know, I know for me, one, I definitely would not want to, you know, have to wear a child killer conviction around my neck for the rest of my life. Mm -hmm. And if I was truly innocent, I would be extremely angry with the state for wrongfully convicting me. And I would want every opportunity to not only to clear my name, but then receive justice, you know, from the state, you know, from a financial perspective and an apology and everything else that comes with it. So there was clearly no reason for them to take the Alfred plea if they had any hint of exculpatory evidence. Correct. And, 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 you know, they, again, they, they misrepresented, they lie about it. It's not even misrepresentation. It is a lie. They were not forced to do it by the state. Of course not. The state can't force <laughs> an Alfred plea. That's ridiculous. They're already convicted. They're sitting in jail. There's no yeah. way the state could force them to take an Alfred plea. And you're right. Why, why would they, if they had, if they had conclusive DNA evidence that exonerated them, why would they approach the state with the Alfred pleas, forego the hearings, and waive their rights to compensation? Exactly. For their alleged wrongful convictions. Well, if, already, um, if he's already said, Ellington is already, you know, giving in, is already, I guess, for lack of a better, you know, definitely showing he doesn't want to put up a fight. So if they had any evidence mm -hmm. yeah. showing it to them would likely, you know, would you know he would have easily folded you know and, quickly you know another another false uh false narrative out there is that they took the alfred police because when they won new trials new trials would take too long eccles was sick and dying um again more propaganda makes absolutely no sense because under arkansas law if new trials were ordered the state had nine to 12 months to either retry them or dismiss the charges exactly yeah and with all the public pressure i mean it's not a big stretch mm -hmm. to say if there was exculpatory evidence they would have just dismissed the charges so so um after the alfred pleas we have um some Minor efforts to keep the case in the public eye. Um, there was uh, Meryl Leverett. She filed some um, ethical complaints against attorneys and then decided to pick a fight with the Arkansas um, Disciplinary Commission for Attorneys. 
because disciplinary complaints are confidential. And there's a very good reason for it. Uh, if I were to file a complaint against, against one of Eccles Baldwin or Miss Kelly's attorneys and say they're liars and they're horrible attorneys and the, the investigation should be done and the complaint should be vetted. And a final word on whether the complaint has any merit should be made by the board or the Arkansas Supreme Court. And the attorney in question should not have his reputation besmirched with unvetted allegations that could be total lies from start to finish. Um, there's no reason. And, and it's not right for a doctor or a lawyer or any other professional who's licensed to have to stay under a cloud and have their reputation besmirched by false statements. And that's why they're confidential. And then once the Arkansas Supreme Court comes out and says yes or no, then that's when, that's when they become public. And there's a very good reason, but of course, Mara Leverett, she wants to lodge these complaints and write articles and talk about how, um, you know, Lloyd Warford or uh, whatever public officials or attorneys she was making complaints about, probably dealing with the Boys on the Tracks case. Um, she wants to be able to write about that and continue her propaganda campaigns rather than dealing with facts because she's not a journalist she's an advocate right and there's a definite consistent theme you know in a lot of these cases but particularly this one where just as you said they file these motions or they take these administrative actions that are opaque to the public view but yet because of that they're able to then take that and bend it in the propaganda campaign and make mm -hmm. something out of it that just simply isn't there but you know as if filing I and mean, it's, it's ironic right of course all these people that are all pro innocence will then say oh just by the mere nature of filing a complaint that naturally means that you know the person against which the complaint is lodged must be guilty and this much show that they're corrupt just because i filed the complaint it's the and the the, the contradictory logic is amazing. Correct. And that is her, you know, she filed against Brent Davis, Scott Ellington, whoever she wants to file against. She wants to be able to say they are corrupt and her, you know, her allegations are true. Um, but however, if I were to turn around and do that to any of the attorneys for Eccles or Baldwin and Miss Kelly, I would be doing something wrong. Because that's just wrong. You know, so anyway, it's it's uh, hypocrisy at its finest. And then also in 2012, uh, Stephen Braga, one of Eccles attorneys, filed a freedom of information claim against the Federal Bureau of Investigation seeking documents generated in connection with the FBI's assistance in the investigation of West Memphis, Memphis 3. And 
interestingly enough, and we've seen it with Rodney Reed, these kind of FOIA claims are often misrepresented as being proof of Brady violations on behalf of the state. So Braga says, I got Val Price and Scott Davidson's files. I don't have anything from the FBI in those files. I sent a request to the FBI and they denied my request. Therefore, at trial, this important information from the FBI was not did, was not available to the defense. And, um, you know, because there's not a file by Davidson and Price that says FBI. But within the case documents, there's letters to the FBI, there's letters from the FBI, there are reports from the FBI, there, you know, are things, and it's just, it's really weird. It's like they use it to say there's a Brady violation at trial. They manipulate it to, to allege a Brady violation at trial. And I think that's kind of what Braga was trying to do. Uh, he ended up really not, um, he got what he was entitled to under the federal law and he didn't get uh, the things that he was not entitled to get, which had, you know, very good reason for the FBI to withhold the documents. Um, whether or not those documents would have been made available to the defendant at trial upon request in 1993, I don't know. Um, but whether Stephen Brogdon could get it now doesn't mean Eccles couldn't have gotten it then. But Again, it's another aspect of the propaganda machine. Yeah, it's just so much. It's so many, you know, yeah, they just they throw a bunch of things against the wall mm -hmm. that folks that aren't familiar with the legal system are a little bit naive or just, you know, predisposed to believe them can latch on to as a massive conspiracy. Correct. And, and it is it's people who are predisposed to believe the worst. And to take and they take it and they run with it. If you look at Twitter comments about the DNA testing, they're taking it and running with it. You know, do a Google search on the DNA testing, the current DNA testing. There's misinformation out there from journalists. And that's another thing that really has always bothered me. These journalists who purport to to cover the courts know better. But don't want to get off on a on a no well tangent. i mean well we've seen more broadly i mean in the last you know few years just i think it's you know again it's a whole other tangent but i think it's there's a lot of different factors but just the quality of what passes for you know quote unquote journalism these days is just really embarrassing and it really mm -hmm. is a it's really a it's a bit real risk to our sort of our cultural conversation as we have a, a lot of folks who wear the t-shirt of a journalist, but they lack sort of the knowledge and the skills, of, you know, to understand the areas they, they cover and they approach it as advocates, not really truth seekers. Correct. They have no objectivity. Exactly. And, and they, they have no ability to report the information without an editorial filter. 
Right. Or they just don't even, they don't know enough. They're not sophisticated enough to understand any level of complexity about why things may occur the way they do. And the, some of these internet journalists are, I mean, they don't even write in the English language. It's there, there have been a couple articles that I've come across about this case and Rodney Reed and a few others. And it's like, I'm reading the article and it's obviously it's like a 15 year old wrote it. Didn't have an editor look at it. There's grammatical errors. There's misspellings. There's, you know, just, it, it's just atrocious. And it's a sad commentary on our education system that, anybody would put something like this up so uh and then finally in 2012 uh to get on the propaganda bag bandwagon pam hicks and mark byers filed a foia claim seeking access to physical evidence in the west Memphis three case uh apparently pam had been told that belongings of steve's were for sale on the internet and this upset her greatly and she wanted to go into West Memphis PD and know that the evidence was safely and securely held. Well, she's not entitled to that, unfortunately. Uh, victims' rights do not extend to victims' family members having such access to physical evidence in a criminal prosecution. Um, her attorney, Ken Swindle, decided to play this to the court of public opinion. And so he took every stupid, ridiculous claim that he could find and he ran with it. And eventually the uh, product of his stupidity was the affidavits of Billy Wayne Stort and Benny Guy, two convicted rapists who were in prison in Arkansas. Uh, I think both were convicted of raping underage women. But I could be wrong. They were just rapists. Uh, they had also been housed with Baldwin. And their story was that at separate times, L.G. Hollingsworth and Buddy Lucas confessed to having participated in the murders of Chris, Michael, and Steve with Terry Hobbs and David Jacoby. And Swindle had press conferences and he had a hearing and he had Buddy Lucas at the hearing and he subpoenaed David Jacoby to appear at the hearing in West Memphis or in Marion. Now, Buddy Lucas is at the hearing and Buddy Lucas allegedly confessed to either Billy Wayne Stewart or Benny Guy or both. And yet at the hearing, Swindle does not call Buddy Lucas, does not confront Buddy Lucas with this purported confession. This was shamelessly, entirely 100% propaganda. 
They published emails they've written to Ellington where Swindle's investigator tried to go talk to Ellington. They portrayed these two rapists and their perjured affidavits as being somehow dispositive and that Ellington had some duty, had a duty to pursue the claims and to immediately let Eccles, Baldwin, and Miss Kelly out of their deals. Now, to their credit, Eccles, Baldwin, and Miss Kelly didn't really, they kind of stayed away from this because I think that even they saw it for the shit show that it was. Uh, ultimately, the claims were dismissed. Uh, allegations notwithstanding, neither Hicks nor Byers had any right to access to physical evidence in the case. So that brings us to propaganda. And then they went quiet for a little while until Bob Ruff did his 2017 uh, the real West Memphis was it? What was Bob Ruff's pop, pop? The truth about the West Memphis Three. What was his podcast? I think that's truth. Truth and truth justice. and justice. Yes, I think that's yes. yeah, that's right. So, um, and you know, he purports to have been involved in arson investigation, but I listened to him questioning, and you know, he, he in his introductory comments, he was very critical of how Miss Kelly was questioned. He was very critical of how other witnesses were questioned. And yet when I listened to him interviewing and questioning people on the podcast, he was doing everything he claimed that was done wrong. Right. Well, you know, and you, I was going to, I was going to note this earlier when you did the intro to the case, you know, for folks that are new, you know, to this case that are listening, I think it's important to remember Miss Kelly confessed five times, including after he was convicted. So this false narrative that his confession was forced and it was, what do they say, after 12 hours, when in fact, what it mm -hmm. was after maybe, you know, two to four hours and he confessed multiple times afterward. And, you know, without going into, you know, too many of the details of that, you know, there's the Evan Williams bottle where he's, yes, he does kind of fudge some of the details of the crime initially, but things mm -hmm. about where he talks about, he, you know, I forget the lady's name, but someone bought him a bottle of Evan Winsky, Evan yeah. Williams whiskey. Vicky Hutchinson. Yes, Vicky Hutchinson, which he drank and he threw the bottle under the overpass and the investigators actually found it, which again is corroborating mm -hmm. evidence that he was not, you know, making up mm -hmm. the confession that yeah. he was actually there there's and, evidence that it was legitimate and how that came about and this is something that bob ruff did not bother to look at he did not bother to look at the how some things came about he just dismissed them the evan williams information came about because um on the drive from the courthouse in Clay County to Pine Bluff, Miss Kelly gave a confession to the transport officers. That was provided to the prosecutor 
Apparently, Miss Kelly had expressed a desire to speak to the prosecutors. And so the prosecutors contacted Dan Stidham and Greg Crow and said, he wants to talk to us. This is a confession he gave. We're going up there to see him. So Stidham and Crow go up there. They meet him there. Stidham's like, I need to talk to him. I want to talk to him first. The prosecutors, even though they didn't really have to, they respected that. They let Stidham go in with him. Stidham comes out looking a little disheveled and, and concerned and asks for a Bible and goes back in. Comes back out. He's a little upset, but he manages to prevent the prosecutors from actually speaking with, with Miss Kelly. And during his discussion with Miss Kelly, Miss Kelly told him about the Evan Williams bottle. And so they go back to West Memphis and they start searching under the underpass. They find the fragments of the bottle. They go into the Walgreens liquor store. They find Evan Williams. They go to Vicki Hutchison because this is information that Stidham provided to the prosecutors. This is not information the prosecutors got from Miss Kelly. This information came from Dan Stidham that he got from his client during this time. They call Vicki Hutchison. Gary Gitchell calls her and Gary says, um, we know you bought a bottle of whiskey for, for uh, Jesse Miss Kelly on May 5th, 1993. Do you remember the brand name? She said Evan Williams. Yep. Which, I mean, technically is a crime. And so she yeah. would have no reason to lie because she's just incriminated herself. Yes, it's probably a misdemeanor. It's a ticket. But still, yeah, <laughs> you know, you, you can't buy liquor for minors. So she would have no reason to lie. She would but, actually have a reason to say, no, I didn't. He's making no, I never he's lying. I never did that. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. the and, and the importance of that information. Is. I mean, the fact that it came from Dan Stidham. After Miss Kelly confessed to him. And during the, his rule 37. Confessions Miss Kelly made to Dan Stidham. Ended up being part of the evidence in the case. Um, but, you know, Stidham and Stidham did the most disservice to Miss Kelly of anybody in the case, similar to what the Avery's did to Brendan Dassey. Instead of protecting his client and telling Eccles to go fuck himself, he jumped on the, their innocent bandwagon and blew an opportunity for his client's sentence to be reduced from life to 40 years where Jesse Miss Kelly would have gotten out of prison in about 15 years. Yeah, and Lisa, I do have to tell you, um, you know, Speaking of the famed investigator who, you know, was fired from his job as a fireman because he missed an investigation right under his nose. While I was at West Memphis, I did not see thousands of prehistoric, gigantic snapping turtles roaming the creek, <laughs> which, you know, I believe was his position that these snapping turtles killed the boys and ate them. I did not see any. Yeah 
large prehistoric snapping turtles. Well, you know, one of the that's another problem that I've always had with the uh, with the uh, pro killer crowd. If Eccles, Baldwin, and Miss Kelly are innocent, and you know that, it doesn't fucking matter who mutilated Chris Byers. It doesn't fucking matter what was done to Michael or Steve. You don't have to find a fucking turtle and say a turtle (laughs) did all that. Okay, that can be done by a human being. Um, But what the whole animal predation thing is basically just let's find something that sounds good that makes it look like the state's case is flawed. Exactly. And that means our guys didn't do it. It's like at Ronnie Reed with time of death. You know, let's just find something and that and then say that means the whole the state's whole case is flawed or is unsupported by any evidence which isn't true. Um, but yeah, that, that was, um, you know, I, I was by that ditch and there wasn't enough, as I understand it, until it rained on May 4th, there wasn't enough water in the ditch for a snapping turtle to even be bothered with the ditch. Yeah, exactly. And, um, so yeah, the 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 level in the bayou and the level in the ditch were negligible. Um, there probably are snapping turtles in the bayou at certain times, uh, but the boys weren't in the bayou. And when Mike Allen fell in the ditch, he didn't have a snapping turtle biting him in the ass. <laughs> you know, which if there's a snapping turtle in the ditch, and the snapping turtle's the one that you know mutilated chris and mutilated steve's face then why isn't it going after mike allen because he's a big grown man and i've had people argue because he was a grown man (laughs) it's like no my that we had a snapping turtle in the pond behind my grandparents house when i was a kid and you know we swam in that pond but somebody was always on the shore and when the turtle came off the rock or the bank and came into the water you got your fucking ass out that water exactly you fr- you practically yes. ran on the water yes. to get out <laughs> um and like we were kids and we could not go down there you got your ass whipped if you went down there without an adult <laughs> because that snapping turtle was in there yeah they are not nice and so, and it was, and it was one snapping turtle. It wasn't like, you know, and there were other turtles, but there was only one snapping turtle. <laughs> and he was a big motherfucker and he would sun himself. And so when you, when he, and, and if he was sunning himself, we could swim. It was fine. But as soon as he went in that pond, it's like, oh, out, <laughs> everybody out. So, um, so truth and justice led to, um, forgotten rest of Memphis three, a television documentary on oxygen. And, you know, it's funny truth and justice around 2018, I want to say 
Bob Ruff mysteriously has to end the project. He's been asked by Eccles attorneys to end the project. As I recall, there's things happening. He can't talk about them right now, but it'll be a subject of the future episode. And then time goes by and all of a sudden you see his ass fat head tattoos on oxygen network, the forgotten West Memphis three. Yeah. Because he, I had heard, you know, I mean, gosh, what's it, was this, was this what 2016, 17, where he had, you know, he kept telling his listeners he had all this new evidence. He had solved the case. It was just uh, going to be a few more months and he was going to release, you know, he had solved it. And yet here we are all these years later and he's, you know, he's moved on. Um, he's probably working on OJ's Innocent. Um, so then he does the Forgotten and, and the Forgotten West Memphis 3 is really no different than Truth and Justice. He claims to want to do testing. He claims he wants to pursue testing. He goes to the DA and he tries to get testing. Now, what on God's green earth gave him the idea that he was entitled to access to case evidence and DNA testing? He's not their attorney. He's not their agent. So then he goes to them and gets them to say, oh, yeah. If you want to do DNA testing, yeah, that's just fine with us. That still doesn't entitle me to DNA testing. And that's another thing that he has been doing falsely is that he gives people the impression that if they ask for it because they want to work from the outside, they're entitled to it. Yeah. And, and Lisa, that that's probably a good. The prosecutor good... is wrong to not do it. Right. And it's probably good for the lay people in the audience, Lisa, just to give people kind of the quick overview of what it means by standing, meaning, you know, in order to pursue legal action, you do have to have some sort of standing in the case. Correct. Correct. Meaning I couldn't go petition, you know, I could not go petition the court to get new DNA testing in the OJ case. Because I have no standing. I'm not a victim. I'm not accused. I have no connection to that case. So, right. you know, just because you're a podcaster doesn't mean you have a right to, you know, petition the court for evidence or, you know, DNA testing. Well, and, and this was a, this is the insulting part. He wasn't even trying to go that route. He was going to Scott Ellington and saying, this is what I want you to send to this lab in California that does MVAC testing. And then months later, he's saying, well, I asked him to do it and he hasn't done it and he hasn't responded. And well, I just don't understand because they're working on exonerating themselves and, you know, he should do this. Why is he fighting it? And that's the thing, too, is that implying that because the authorities are not doing what you're wanting them to do is somehow nefarious or hiding something even though the reason they're not doing what you want them to do is because you have no right to ask them to do it. That's why Ellington would not send anything at Bob Ruff's request. Right. I mean, well, think about it practically. If courts could just, if courts were obligated or the state was obligated to 
follow the request of every random person in any case, our courts are already clogged and backed up. But could you imagine mm -hmm. if any person had the right to go to a court or the state and demand action, nothing would ever get done. I mean, yeah. that's a recipe for just delay forever. Correct. Nothing would ever happen. And and in our system, in reality, victims don't have a right. The Moors could not go to the courts and request DNA testing of this evidence to try to prove Eccles Baldwin and or Ms. Kelly are guilty. Their, their desire to do so would be blocked by the prosecutor and blocked by the courts because they don't have standing. And that is, uh, so um, Ruff, after um, falsely making it sound like he was entitled to the testing he was asking for and disparaging Ellington for not doing the testing he was asking for, he enlisted Stephen Braga to intervene with Scott Ellington. Now, again, all this is premised on the um, agreement that Ellington would consider new evidence, he would consider testing, and he would revisit the issue of guilt and or innocence, um, depending on what he's presented with by the three killers. Um, but this is not an agreement that has been memorialized formally between Ellington and the attorneys or between Ellington and the killers. It's an informal agreement. And really, Ellington's not bound by it. Um, so through 2020, Ellington and Braga go back and forth. And Ellington doesn't say, uh, fuck, no, this isn't going to happen. He doesn't tell. He doesn't directly tell them no, apparently, although I highly doubt that um, because they're not they're not accurate reporters. They're biased. And so they're going to report what supports them and their position. And they're not going to report anything that harms that position. Um, so in the end, Ellington in March of 2020 is elected to the bench. God help that district. And he leaves the prosecutor's office. Um, on October 22nd, 2020, the governor appoints Keith Crestman to serve as a replacement starting on January 1st, 2021 through December 31st, 2022. Uh, the negotiations begin again, and apparently their, their shtick with Crestman is, well, Ellington said he would do it, so we want you to do it, so we're asking that you do it. And they tell him, you need to send this to this lab in California. They do MVAC. It's going to be great. Um, finally, I guess Crestman got a little tired of the bullshit. Because in a on April 1st, 2021, this is what Crestman writes to Patrick Benka, who has stepped in in place of Stephen Braga, probably because he's now practicing law with former Attorney General Dustin McDaniel. Um, I confirm with my predecessor your discussion. Based on his description, it sounds like your client wants to use the MVAC wet vacuum-based collection method analysis. 
regardless of whether this will yield valuable evidence, releasing the material isn't my decision. The property is seized. It doesn't belong to my office. So you'll need to petition the court asking for permission and giving the state an opportunity to be heard. But in anticipation of your client's motion, I've asked the West Memphis Police Department to catalog what remaining evidence there is. Now, Cressman had apparently made a comment that um, evidence may have been lost, misplaced, and or destroyed by fire after 2011. Um, again, it's a quote in an article. And I believe it's a quote attributed to Cressman by Banka. So I'm going to call, not sure about the accuracy of this statement having come from Cressman. Uh, it could have been Cressman saying, you know, it's been this long. It's possible that evidence is gone. It's possible that evidence has been lost, misplaced, or destroyed. Um, hedging his bets, not speaking from a position of direct knowledge of the evidence disposition, but just thinking reasonably and logically that after all this time, it's a possibility. Um, but Cressman's statement makes it very clear that the evidence sought for testing by Ruff, Braga, and Banca has never been the prosecutors to release and advising very strongly and very specifically that the proper procedure has always been to file a motion seeking court approval for their testing and to secure the release of evidence via court order to a lab. Um, on April 5th, 2021, Banca, uh, not surprisingly, because apparently he's a dumbass, he completely ignores Cressman's advice and he just harps on the lost, misplaced, or destroyed evidence and wants to know what happened to it, where it is, when it happened. He wants reports. He wants everything he needs to figure out what happened to the evidence. But again, he ignores the advice of filing a motion for court approval for DNA testing. Um, on April 13th, 2021, he sends a letter email again, not saying I'm going to file a motion for DNA testing. You're right. But saying, I want to know what happened to the evidence. Tell me now. And he includes a copy of his April 5th, 2021 letter. Um, on April 28th, 2021, in a newspaper interview, Cressman apparently said much of the evidence in the West Memphis 3 case was gone. Uh, the reporter does not go into much detail. Uh, but again, unless I see Cressman saying it himself, I am beginning to doubt whether Cressman, the words ever came out of Cressman's mouth. Um, in May of 2021, Cressman had failed to respond to any of Benka's inquiries and uh, had failed to provide an evidence catalog by custodians because apparently there was another request for access to evidence made by Banca. In July, on July 20, 
on July 6, 2021, uh, Banca makes a formal FOIA request to the custodian of records for the West Memphis Police Department seeking records regarding the cataloging, disposition, destruction by fire, misplacement, um, and evidence of where the records are. Um, Getting no answer on July 16th, they file in the closed state versus Eccles prosecution case a motion for declaratory and injunctive relief alleging spoliation of evidence by the West Memphis Police Department. Now, that's not the proper forum for this because this is the closed criminal prosecution has nothing to do with the FOIA request. Uh, On the 30th of July, the state files an answer or a response which points that flaw out. uh, And in a reply, merely playing to the court of public opinion and that's all any of this is doing playing to the court of public opinion Eccles attorneys make arguments that have nothing to do with the flaws pointed out in the prosecutor's response to their motion um the democrat gazette and wmc5 action news get in on the on the thing and they report Uh, that they've confirmed that evidence was destroyed in a fire 15 years ago, but then the request for the fire reports is ignored. um, So they don't know exactly when the fire occurred or where it occurred or how it occurred. And the, um, I, again, I think that what was happening was people, officials were speaking out of turn. They should not have been addressing these things because they didn't have any direct information. They should have said, we're not the ones to ask, go talk to the West Memphis PD. And left it at that. Um, and, And they created problems for themselves and they created a negative public image for themselves by speaking out of turn on on subjects they had no direct information about. So then on September 10th, 2021, Banca filed a complaint for declaratory and injunctive relief in the Circuit Court of Crittenden County, which was the proper forum and the proper way because he is the one who made the FOIA request. When you're seeking to enforce a FOIA request or you're seeking damages in connection with a FOIA request that is not um, responded to under the state FOIA law, the person who made the request is the only person with standing. Eccles doesn't have standing because he didn't make the request. Banca made the request. So they do finally get it in the right forum. Um, There was a summons issued to the West Memphis Police Department on September 16, 2021. Now, interestingly, another part of the propaganda was Lonnie Sori and Merrill Leverett each claimed that some kind of order was issued directing the West Memphis PD to give access to the evidence. I have found no such order 
in either the criminal prosecution case or the FOIA request case. Zero. So you think, she, so you think she's just making this up? I, I, I think she thinks the summons is some kind of order because she doesn't know the courts. Or she's just smoked so much pot, she has no idea what's going on anymore. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I, I think she believes and Lonnie Sori believe that the summons, which is basically saying you've been sued. And you have this amount of time to answer. And here's the site, you know, here's the petition filed against you. That's all the summons does. It's not an order from a court. It's right. signed by the clerk. You know, it's saying this is a this is a true and correct copy of what we've got in our court record. Here you go. Um, on October 20th, 2021, Michael Stevenson, the West Memphis City Attorney, did send an email to Banca, but the email referenced was not attached and it has not appeared online. So I don't know exactly what it said, but it may have been an overture to have Banca come to the West Memphis PD and see what he wants to see. And on October 29th, 2021, the West Memphis uh, City Attorney did file an answer and basically admitted the allegations uh, in paragraphs two, three, and seven, which cited the law of the petition and reserved defenses and sought dismissal of the action. Uh, in December 2021, around the 21st, Banco went to the West Memphis Police Department, reviewed the evidence, and guess what? He found all of it was there accounted for, properly stored, cataloged, and intact. So all their complaints and all the propaganda about lost, missing, destroyed evidence was false. In reality, no evidence was lost, missing, or destroyed. And you would think that they would say oops are bad we've got egg on our face but they're not they pretend they pretend they never said these things they pretend it didn't happen so now they're saying um it's it's all there but no everybody's ignoring that people are still referring to lost evidence i found a supposed journalist who's reporting that there's an a hearing about the lost evidence scheduled. What the fuck? What is wrong with you people? Yeah, I've gotten to where when I say from a journalist, I automatically think, yeah, that's probably not true. Yeah. So I'm I'm being uh, I'm being um, oh, what is the word? I'm being generous. So. Um, after his foray at the West Memphis Police Department, Banca sends an agreed order to Cressman proposing uh, examination of the evidence with MVAC collection methods 
and DNA testing. Now, the order he sent is not available online. I looked for it. I tried to find it because I really would love to read it because I'm sure it would give me a good laugh. Uh, but again, and this is another aspect of the propaganda campaign. They're very selective about what documents they put out there. Right. So they put out their petition and their declaratory motion in the FOIA claims, but the agreed order that they sent the prosecutor, they're not going to provide. And then they're going to criticize the prosecutor when he doesn't want to sign it. And Cressman's response, again, bears repeating in full. On January 7th, 2022, Cressman sends uh, an email response to Benka. I've received and reviewed your proposed agreed order. There is statutory law for addressing new scientific evidence and governing physical evidence, but the proposed order doesn't reference them, nor is there an explanation of how the proposed order comports with the law. Indeed, it doesn't cite any legal authority. So I can't imagine the circuit court entering this order. I renew my original suggestion, which I emailed to you more than nine months ago. You need to file a petition with the circuit court for the relief your client seeks. Now, again, what do we get in response to this? Prosecutor refuses to test DNA evidence, prosecutor blocking DNA evidence, and the little peanut galleries saying, what are they hiding? Why are they hiding? They know they're innocent. So, uh, again, propaganda campaign. Um, yeah, so much smoke and mirrors. Yeah. And so, and, and I, I know about this because in the petition for, to conduct additional DNA testing, Eccles cites this as the response to his agreed order. Because, again, in the in the court of public opinion, all this plays very well. Right. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's anything it, they can get their hands, sink their teeth into. He quotes this, but then he, he characterizes it as the, the prosecutor refusing to sign the order. Um, and also giving the impression that there is somehow an entitlement to this testing, which again, does not exist. That is a false narrative there is no entitlement to post-conviction dna testing there is no entitlement to post alfred plea dna testing dna testing in the state of arkansas is governed by state law specifically arkansas code annotated section 16-112-101 at sec my note site 201 but it actually begins at 101. Um, and basically the, the petition is plain to the court of public opinion because all of the allegations it makes are irrelevant to those statutory requirements. Um, on the 8th of February, the state filed its response to the Act 1780 petition, which is another, another way of referring to this Arkansas DNA testing statute. 
um, and points out it doesn't meet the law's requirements and that it was not filed in the court in which the conviction was entered, which is a fatal error. Eccles is no longer in custody. It was untimely if filed more than 36 months after conviction. Um, that the court must determine whether MVAC is generally accepted scientific testing method and whether that violates requirement for preserving physical evidence. Uh, and it makes a few other, uh, other claims, um, whether it's scientifically sound method and generally accepted, whether it alters the evidence, it raises due process concerns as to Baldwin and Ms. Kelly, who have not joined in Eccles' request. Um, it cites the substantial evidence of guilt presented at trial and the fact that finding another person's DNA at the crime scene at this point would not prove actual innocence and it reserves the right to plead further. Um, and it says the state cannot agree to the court granting the petition to conduct additional DNA testing. And again, in any situation in which you get involved in court, one side is not required to lay down and show its belly just because the other side claims to have the moral high ground. So when Eccles files his position, the state is not required to say, okay, now you filed your petition. We're going to send everything off for you. Here you go. You know, when anything is governed by a state law, both sides are allowed to argue whether or not the state law governing the, the controversy should be decided in favor of one or the other. Uh, it's just like the state could not say, okay, we, we found a DNA test result that, that corroborates Ms. Kelly's confession. So we're taking back the Alfred pleas. Y'all all need to go back to prison right now. Right. Well, no, if, that, yeah, exactly. if that's what the state wants to do, the state needs to file a petition and ask the court, to vacate the Alfred police. And, you know, this is another thing too, that has, uh, that has bothered me. And again, demonstrates the propaganda aspects of the uh, claims of innocence. If they really felt that the Alfred plea was unfairly thrust upon them, or they were somehow forced to do it, they could have filed a motion to vacate that plea anytime. But the problem is, if the court vacates the plea, they go back to where they were at the time they entered the plea, mm. which means Eccles goes back to death row. Goes back to death row. Interesting. Yep. So and so, of course, they're not going to do that. And more likely than not, they their their allegations regarding the plea are all made out of whole cloth. They're not true. Right. Um, so they, they would not do that. So then on the 15th of February, 2022, uh, Eccles filed a reply memorandum in support of his petition. Um, and once again, he's only playing to the court of public opinion. And once again, demonstrating what an idiot he is, Banka has now drawn line in the sand and started attacking the prosecutor and he isn't even right. Uh, first of all, Banka asserts that Eccles conviction was in Craighead, in Craighead County had been vacated and that is correct. And that the Alfred plea was entered in Crittenden County 
substituting for the Craighead County. That's false. Mm. The plea documents were entered in Craighead County. Um, he argues that the law doesn't require Eccles to be in custody. And well, that may be an issue to be determined by the Arkansas Supreme Court definitively. But a lot of the federal post, uh, not federal, a lot of state post-conviction claims and cases, one of the things is that if you're not in custody, then you can't avail yourself of state post-conviction remedies. Because if you're no longer in custody, the only remedy in state post-conviction is a new trial. Right. And if you're well, not in custody, yeah. a new trial isn't going to do you any good. Exactly. That's, I mean, that's the thing as a lay person, that's always confusing. It's like, I mean, exactly. What is the remedy? You're, you're not, I mean, yeah, what's going to mm -hmm. happen? I mean, you're, not, you're not in prison or you're not in jail. What possible right. remedy could there be? So, um, and then they fail to cite any evidence rebutting the presumptions regarding untimeliness of the motion, uh, other than asserting that MVAC is new based on FBI articles, but not based on you know, based on FBI articles art authored in 2020. But that may be when they authored the articles, but when did they start studying MVAC? And it doesn't, it doesn't elaborate on that. Um, and if, if Bob's mentioning it at the beginning of Truth and Justice podcast in 2017, then it's new in 2017. Um, and there is in, in the DNA testing statute, there is a three year limitation for filing requests for DNA testing. And they are well outside that they're the last date they could have filed. That was August 19, 2014. Um, then, um, it fails to cite any, uh, evidence that it was unavailable and was unavailable in 2011 uh, and proposes to preserve three out of six ligatures for future testing to address the due process concerns for Baldwin and Ms. Kelly and misrepresents the Arkansas Supreme Court's findings, uh, which were, were basically dicta without the benefit of the 2011 DNA testing results, which were completed days before the killers approached Ellington with a proposal to take Alfred pleas in exchange for release from prison. On, um, on March 7th, the state filed a notice attaching certified copies of Eccles' guilty plea statement, plea and sentencing recommendation, suspended imposition of sentencing and sentencing order, all entered in the Western District of Craighead County, Arkansas, on August 22nd, 2011, in State of Arkansas versus Damian Eccles, case number 16JCR-93. Dash 450A for use at future hearings. So, um, Banka's first attack on the state uh, is going to end up putting serious egg, rotten egg on his face because he has said the Alfred plea was entered in Crittenden County, and that isn't true. It's wrong. Banka was wrong, wrong, wrong. Say it with me. Banco was wrong. Is wrong, wrong, wrong. <laughs> so, 
So uh, also on the 7th of March, perhaps after getting that notice, perhaps blissfully ignorant of its existence, Banka sent a letter requesting a hearing on his petition that was filed on January 24th, 2022. 2022. Um, which guys, you know, for those of you counting, He's coming up on eight years outside the statute. Because the statute is three years, 2014. It's 2022. Wow. When he files his petition. Yeah. So, um, and on March 10th, 2022, the court entered a notice of setting, uh, which sets a petition to conduct further DNA testing for hearing on June 23rd, 2022, at 9.30 a.m. before Judge Alexander, uh, Judge Tanya Alexander, I believe her name is. Um, it requires any objection to setting to be made within 10 days of March 10th, 2022, and no objection has been made thus far. Uh, it requires notification to Judge Alexander should the case settle or need to be removed and requiring the attorneys to sign and return an acknowledgement within 10 days of that notice. Um, those haven't been filed of record yet, uh, which would have been March 20th. Um, but um, so that's where it stands. Uh, again, you know, Eccles is going to give the false impression that the state is wrong for appearing at the hearing and cross-examining his witnesses and trying to show that he's not entitled to DNA testing, but um, he's lying. They're, they're perfectly entitled. They're doing their job under the law. Yeah. And Lisa, what do you think, what do you think his end game in this is? I mean, what do you think he's trying to accomplish? I mean, I'm, I, it is a little surprising. He just doesn't lay low and be like, I got away with, you know, killing three kids. What do you think is in game? Is it a fundraising thing? Is he trying to make more money because his celebrity, you know, connections have kind of dried up. No one's paying that much attention to him. What do you think his end game is? I think, I think he is trying to remain relevant. I think it provides a revenue stream for him because they seek donations for testing. Right. Even though they haven't asked, they, they haven't been granted testing, but I, I think they are seeking testing. Uh, it keeps him relevant. It keeps him in the public eye. It makes him seem important. It gives him a forum to bemoan the fact that he was on death row in Arkansas. Right. It's just a way to, to stay bemoan in the, news. the fact that he was almost executed, which is false. He was never almost executed. He got one execution date. And after that, he was safe from being executed because he maintained post-conviction claims. Yeah, because both of those guys, I mean, it's one of the reasons, it goes back to the confessions. I mean, I've always felt like Jesse Miss Kelly is genuinely sorry and regretful why he confesses so often, or he confessed, and also why he, he stays out of the public eye. He doesn't feel good, you know, monetizing his murder of three children mm -hmm. but yet you know Eccles always is doing it and even Baldwin right he didn't he collect a bunch of raised a bunch of money to write a book that is it's, what five years has overdue. Not yet. yeah yeah and both of those guys just continue to exploit their murder of of three kids right and 
pretending to be innocent. And, and, and it gives Baldwin and Eccles the opportunity to continue making themselves the victim and ignore the real victims and the only victims. Right. You know, um, the way it stands in reality, um, you had the opportunity to, quote, exonerate yourself. You didn't take it. You entered a guilty plea. Um, you're not exonerated. Exactly. You remain legally and factually guilty of the murders of Christopher Byers, Steve Branch, and Michael Moore. Yep. They pleaded guilty and were convicted. Two juries. You you had the burden of proof at the hearings. You didn't go forward with the hearings. So, um, you know, like I said, it, it gives him a chance to remain relevant to remain in the public eye because you'll notice as soon as the case kind of sort of starts to fade, something comes up. It started yep. to kind of fade, but Bob Ruff came out with truth and justice. It started to fade. And then the forgotten West Memphis three and the ID case profile, right? There's always something to keep it Wrong. in the news. And these are people who entered a plea their plea agreements expired on August 19th, 2021. So I think every one of those motherfuckers could now go out and commit felonies and not risk going back to prison in Arkansas. Right. Yeah. They're all got because their, their agreements are over. Um, they have, they have a felony conviction on their records, but you know, they're not at, they're not in danger of being put back in prison. Which Miss Kelly got very lucky in 2017 and 2018 uh, because when he, his first encounter, his first criminal charges, Ellington could have thrown his butt back in prison. And really technically should have. It's another example of him, Ellington being a coward. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, although I think, I think there was, well, I think there was most of his encounters were misdemeanor, but I think there was a felony um, child endangerment that kind of got hushed, that didn't even get pursued. And that's how Ellington avoided it. He didn't pursue it. So, but yeah, and they, they just want to keep, they want to keep the propaganda going. It was so lucrative for them. And you know, I, I think they do want DNA testing. I think that they um, they are not in danger of having any conclusive evidence that, that uh, inculpates them because that was destroyed on May 5th, 1993, when the bodies were placed in water. Right. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, so that you know there there's no and i think this mvac testing i don't think i don't think the ligatures will or will yield any dna um so there will be no dna maybe a partial profile will come up but it won't it won't link anybody and you know it'll be to say it's they'll they'll Another thing them, that they say is 
our DNA was not found. Well, that's true. What DNA was found did exclude you, but there's a significant list of evidence that didn't return DNA for any meaningful comparison. So there's a lot of evidence that we don't know whether it, it didn't really exclude you. Right. Yeah. It's like kind of, yeah, just because it didn't exclude you didn't mean it. I mean, you're not the, guilty. You know, in the, in the end, the DNA testing was wholly inconclusive. And that's really, that's kind of the way, the best way to sum this up, right? Is there was no, because, like you said, because the bodies were in water, you know, for, you know, a, a while, there's just, there's no clear DNA, DNA evidence mm -hmm. either way. And, and there, I, there never will be, you know, there, there never will be, um, well, now I take that back. There could potentially be, uh, conclusive DNA evidence on Miss Kelly's t-shirt and Eccles necklace that was seized at his arrest on June 3rd. Yeah, and why hasn't that been tested? Why hasn't that been tested? Because the killers have chosen not to test it. Well, I'm glad that came up because that's the piece in the state, I guess, because they've taken the Alfred plea. There's really no re I mean, the state, for all intents and purposes, from a state's perspective, this case is closed. Well, and let me let me point something out. It, the state is if the state tests anything it becomes new evidence regardless of the results and could entitle them to new trials now there's a claim that in 2011 the state tested the t-shirt or attempted to test the t-shirt but i haven't seen anything um proving that to be true Mm. I haven't seen a report, uh, but uh, that may have been in while the while they were testing DNA, the state may have had a little bit of leeway to do some testing. Uh, but yeah, I mean, there's a potential with MVAC that the necklace and the T-shirt could yield DNA that could be tested and a conclusive result in 20. 22 could be obtained because we couldn't get a conclusive result in 1993 however they don't want to test it they're right. not asking to test it yeah and that's again that's a, such a so points that they know what that's going to say i mean the fact that they don't want to test everything mm -hmm. screams yeah. so loudly yeah, because but they know what that will show. They, they know the results of those but DNA people, tests. People ignore it. And I've had this argument with people on the West Memphis Three Truth Facebook page where, well, they know it's going to be Miss Kelly's DNA on the shirt and Baldwin's DNA on the necklace. They don't need to test it. That's too much money. Well, no, they don't know that. You want to believe they know that, but why don't they prove it? Mm -hmm. You know? So, um, but yeah, that is, and, and they, they never sought to test it in 2002. They never sought to test those items in 2004. 
They never sought testing in 2005. They never sought testing in 2006 or 2007. And they never sought testing of those items in 2011. They tested a bunch of hairs in 2011, most of which didn't exclude Chris Byers. So basically inc inconclusive result. But they didn't test a necklace that could have been linked to either one of the killers or one of the victims or a t-shirt that could have been either the victim or the killer. Yeah. I would want to definitively prove if I'm actually innocent, I would want to definitively prove, see, it wasn't a victim's DNA on either of those things. Right, exactly. So, um, but yeah, so that's, um, this is the show that I, I wanted to do in September of 2021 when Clearing Convincing ended. And I'm so glad that I finally had a chance to do it and to release all of this stuff. <laughs> Well, you've done a, I mean, you're such an expert on this case. You've done so much research. It's, I mean, that's the, another thing too. There's always such a clear, I guess, you know, delineation between people that have actually done a lot of actual research into the case, what their opinion is and their conclusions are versus people that just rely on, you know, short, you know, little Twitter notes or the quick mm -hmm. propaganda. Anybody yeah. who's researched these cases has a much different opinion. Yeah, definitely. And I think, um, you know, whether it changes your opinion about guilt of Eccles, Baldwin, and Miss Kelly, at least look at this additional information that they're not giving you and ask yourself, why wouldn't they tell me this? Why wouldn't they present this? Yeah, they're supposedly exactly. absolutely innocent. Well, yeah, they're not only absolutely innocent, but they're supposedly like OJ looking for the real killers. So why wouldn't they, why wouldn't they <laughs> yeah. want everything out there? Why wouldn't they want to try to find them? They, they claim to have been exonerated. Exactly. So, you know, why would they, why would they not? And this goes to Bob Ruff because he ignored a lot of things in his coverage. Um, and, and just, basically, you know, poo-pooed anything that didn't fit in his bias and his predisposed. And that's another thing that, that really aggravates the crap out of me is Bob Ruff is one to talk about confirmation bias and the West Memphis PD had confirmation bias and they made a rush to judgment and blah, blah, blah. But then he starts proof, truth and justice with a confirmation bias of the person he's profiling as innocent. And so yeah, then he, he only looks at what makes that person innocent. He's a gigantic projection. I mean, everything, everything that he accuses people of is just basically his own confession. Yeah. So, all right. Well, that is, I think we, I, I think we're ready to put a bow on that one. Thank you so much for being here with me, Kyle. No, it's great. You're such an expert. It's always great to listen to your detailed knowledge of all these cases. You do so much work. And I hope that I hope the listeners appreciate all the work that you put into this and all the knowledge that you have. Thank you. 
So um, I wanted to talk with you a little bit now about uh, what we're going to do down the road. Uh, of course, I have next week's case in mind, but um, have you been watching the thing about Pam on NBC? I have not, but it is on my list. I'm going okay. to start watching it. I was I actually researched it today. I've seen so many previews. Okay. It is good. It is really good. And I'm going to tell you right now, I'm looking forward to after this finish, after the series finishes doing this case, doing that case, because it is a legitimate wrongful conviction case. Spoiler alert. <laughs> well, you know what's interesting too? I heard I was reading about it today and they said I think it was outside of OJ and I'm having a senior moment. One other really famous case. NBC Dateline has spent more time on this case than any other it's like number three but like number one is oj and number two is another really famous case but it is the most covered case by dateline or it's number but three you know what the bitch is not one of those dateline episodes is available on demand really or on peacock uh, i thought they now oh. hopefully hopefully they're not hopefully after the thing about pam concludes they'll make them available again. Sure. Yeah, they absolutely have to. Right. What about the yeah. podcast? Can you look, can you search the Dateline podcast? Um, I, I, ha I haven't searched. I don't listen to that many podcasts. I listen to Roberta's podcast and I listen to Shelly's podcast. Um, Shelly Levesey, the attorney in Oklahoma, but I really don't listen to that many other podcasts. Um, unless sometimes I'll listen to them in preparation for my podcast. Right. Um, but I, I'm looking forward. I'd rather see the Dateline episodes than listen to the podcast. Right. So, well, I can tell you, um, my wife threatens to kill me often, and she has promised me that she will kill me in such a manner that it is Keith worthy. <laughs> that if once she murders me, Keith, she will do it in such a way that Keith will be uh, Keith will do my Dateline episode. Are you going to haunt anybody that says you lit up a room when you walked in? <laughs> I already told her I will haunt regardless whether she kills me or I die naturally. I will haunt. <laughs> so. Um... And then another another documentary series or two documentary series I've been watching on A&E, uh, Secrets of Playboy and so I, Chippendales. Oh, I watched. Um, I'm having a senior moment, but it's funny. What's crazy is the Chippendales connection with the. Well, those two are related, right? Because the yes. um, the famous the playmate of the year who was murdered by the her boyfriend, Dorothy Stratton, had, yes, husband. Dorothy yes. Stratton's husband with the connection with the Chippendales guy. Yeah, but it was. It, I, I want to look at that case, even though there was no legal uh, legal action connected with Str with Dorothy Stratton's murder. Um, I do want to look at that because I think it's a it, it'd be a 
it, it it's a really good episode to talk about um, with partner domestic violence. Yes. Um, and it's, uh, it's a it's sad, you know, it's a sad tale and it made an impact on me because in 1980, I remember the stories in the Times-Picayune after the murder was committed. I mean, there was like a two, three page article detailing Dorothy Stratton's life, her getting into Playboy, you know, her, her rise with Playboy and then her murder and her film career. Right. It was, and, you know, she was a, a young woman with amazing potential. Yes. Who was just so cruelly taken away from her family and people who loved her and um, such a bright future. Yeah. Well, I think about it, um, you know, being from Texas, I don't know how famous she is outside of the area, but there was a Tejano singer, Tejano singer named Selena. Yeah. Wasn't domestic violence, you know, and she was murdered right as her career was able to, you know, was about to take off. And then Jennifer Lopez played her in the movie. So I often feel like Jennifer Lopez is living the life that Selena should have had because Mm -hmm. Selena really had that talent. She was about to take off until, you know, the president of her fan club killed her. Well, you know, Selena, actually, she had in in Tejano music. I mean, she had done. Yeah, she was. No woman had ever been able to do. And what was her dream of crossing over? into mainstream that was what was about to be realized exactly even without the crossover into mainstream she had done so much that's right yeah she was very yeah exactly um you know because when they first started out people told her father they don't list they don't do women this is a waste of your time women don't make it in this in this business but Selena did. She proved them all wrong. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that is that uh, clear and convincing did a Selena episode. That's, a, that's, a, that very, that's a very interesting case as well. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, and then I, I think we also are going to have to look at Glossop at some point. But that one's one I think I need a two week period to get ready for <laughs> yeah for, absolutely so because there's a lot a lot of material and to put together the case notes are going to be it's going to be a lot of extensive extensive work so yeah no question but are there any other cases you can think of that you would like to to look at you know, the one, and it has been covered a lot, but it's gotten a lot of traction lately. And it's, again, it's a little bit of a connection because I actually used to live in Rowlett, but it's always the Darley Routier case, which uh, I think is fascinating. You know, yeah. and it, 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 it perks, it feels like every five years, there's some big push that, you know, she is innocent. And it fascinates me, not only because I used to live in Rowlett, but I mean, I would say of almost of all of these cases like there's nobody reasonably could think she's innocent i mean she's mm-hmm. like the most obviously guilty of 
almost anyone yet there is a real large contingent of people that are convinced that she is innocent and i think it's probably some of it because there are a lot of folks that just can't wrap their head around the fact that a mother would so brutally murder her kids yeah but there's a lot of crazy conspiracies and everything else around Mm -hmm. it and you know when 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 Claren convincing looked at that case we had a guest on so our our profile of it was a little bit different uh it wasn't from the legal opinion standpoint Mm. that i i usually focus on so that that's the case although it's difficult because there are these quote bombshells from the from the routier camp but then they don't go anywhere exactly and you know like i I know recently the innocence project is involved they're going to get dna testing they've gotten dna testing but then they sealed the results exactly yeah there's a lot of parallels you know yeah for a lot of Um, these cases so that that's one that's one that's another one that would probably be uh well i would need about a two-week lead time (laughs) right exactly (laughs) to look at but um no that's another one and listeners you know please in the drop your drop your suggestions suggestions in the comments um of course i prefer cases that have gone to trial and um have resulted in appellate opinions being generated but i've been known to make exceptions uh the dorothy stratton case is a case that i would be happy to make an exception on um so just you know drop your case in the comments and if you have some expertise on them of course let me know and you may be a guest on the show or a guest host so um uh that would uh that would be great so we're we're we've got next week um maybe stratton the week after and then we'll we'll play it by ear from there yeah some fantastic content and yeah and uh, again to the to the listeners you uh show show how much love that uh, Lisa puts into this because it is not easy to do all this research. You're truly you. an expert on all of these cases. So, um, yeah, and and when uh, the thing about Pam is done, we're gonna look at we're gonna look at that. Yeah, I'm gonna have to convince uh, Mrs. Kyle that uh, we're gonna start watching that tonight. So, so if I don't respond to your email, yeah. she finally killed me because she didn't like it. But you can see me on Dateline. Yeah, well, there are only three episodes so far. Um, so you're better, and you're better off to try and start now, so that you can kind of keep up with it, rather than risk having to binge it all in one weekend. Yeah, that reminds me, actually, um, I won't say it publicly, but um, I will, uh, I'll shoot you a text. There's an interesting case that no, I don't think anyone has ever covered before, but it actually might be a really interesting one for us. So okay, um, I'll shoot you a text and um, we can talk about it. Yeah, definitely. Um, so yeah, we'll, uh, we'll look at that. And once the uh, and listeners out there, if you're not watching it already, uh, please, the thing about Pam, it is uh, it is very interesting. It's a an interesting case, and 
like I said, it's a, it's a case that I am saying involves a legitimate wrongful conviction. That is a red letter day. <laughs> exactly. According to my critics. Because I'm usually one who just accepts what the state says and follows along blindly. So, um, all right. Well, let's, uh, I guess we'll go ahead and wrap it up. Thank you for listening to Based no, in you. Fact. Oh, <laughs> all right. Take two. Thank you for listening to Based in Fact, a true crime podcast with Lisa O'Brien and guest co-host Kyle. If you like the show and want to know more, you can find us on Facebook or follow me on Twitter at O'Brien L. Ann. Join us next week for Episode 7, State of New York versus Carolyn Warmus. Warmus's crime was dubbed the fatal attraction murder because she was accused of the January 15th, 1989 murder of Betty Jean Solomon, her married lover's wife. After two trials, Warmus was convicted of second-degree murder and sentenced to 25 years to life in prison. We'll talk about the evidence against Warmus, her troubled relationship history, her trials, conviction, appeals, and her continued claims of wrongful conviction. Until then, have a great week and stay safe. Good night. Thank you.